You're listening to a sermon from the Langley Canadian Reformed Church. We hope you'll find it to be spiritually edifying. I'd invite you to turn in your Bibles this morning to Galatians chapter 4. What I am saying is that as long as the heir is a child, he is no different from a slave, although he owns the whole estate. He's subject to guardians and trustees until the time set by his father. So also, when we were children, we were in slavery under the basic principles of the world. But when the time had fully come, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under law, to redeem those under law, that we might receive the full rights of sons. Because you are sons, God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, the spirit who calls out, Abba, Father. So you're no longer a slave, but a son. And since you are a son, God has made you also an heir. We continue to read the word of the Lord, this time from Matthew 1 at verse 18. This is how the birth of Jesus Christ came about. His mother Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph, but before they came together, she was found to be with child through the Holy Spirit. Because Joseph, her husband, was a righteous man and did not want to expose her to public disgrace, he had in mind to divorce her quietly. But after he had considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife, because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet, the virgin will be with child and will give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke up, he did what the angel of the Lord had commanded him and took Mary home as his wife. But he had no union with her until she gave birth to a son. And she and he gave him the name Jesus. We read now from Luke chapter 2 at verse 8. And there were shepherds living out in the field nearby, keeping watch over their flocks at night. An angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them. And they were terrified. Do not be afraid. I, give, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all people. Today in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is Christ the Lord. This will be a sign to you. You will find a baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. Suddenly a great company of the heavenly host appeared with the angel praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace to men on whom his favor rests. When the angels had left them and gone into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let's go to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has told us about. So they hurried off and found Mary and Joseph and the baby who was lying in the manger. When they had seen him, they spread the word concerning what had been told them about this child, and all who heard it were amazed at what the shepherds said to them. But Mary treasured all these things up and pondered them in her heart. And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all the things they had seen and heard, which were just as they had been told. Our text this morning is the verses before our last reading there from Luke chapter 2. Luke chapter 2, the verses 1 through 7. In those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. 
This was the first census that took place while Quirinius was governor of Syria, and everyone went to his own town to register. So Joseph also went up from the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judea to Bethlehem, the town of David, because he belonged to the house and line of David. He went there to register with Mary, who was pledged to be married to him and was expecting a child. While they were there, the time came for the baby to be born, and she gave birth to her firstborn, a son. She wrapped him in cloths and placed him in a manger because there was no room for them in the inn. Brothers and sisters of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, it was barely discernible in the utter darkness of a moonless night. It was obscured by the blowing riffraff from the forest that was kicked up by the midnight storm. And it was seemingly willfully isolated from the warmth of communion. It was a dark, dreary, and desolate house. It sat all alone, as it had for years. It was a house that could simultaneously evoke from you feelings of of sympathy and of disdain. Sympathy because you realize that the house hadn't always been like this, this dark and dreary, desolate, lonely place. But that it had one time been the object of affection and love of someone who had built it. It had one time had a purpose. And at one time, it had enjoyed the warmth of communion, the warmth of hospitality, the warmth of Fellowship within. You felt disdain for this house, on the other hand, because it had gotten to this point. It had betrayed the love that had been shown to it. It had rejected and reneged on the purpose for which it had been built. And now it offered no warmth, no hospitality, and no communion within its four walls and underneath its roof. It was a lonely place on a cold and terrible night. It was a sad house. If you're under the age of 15, you probably know what I mean by that. Boys and girls, have you ever seen a house like that? A house that you look at it and you just can tell that this is a sad house. And it seemed like it always would be a sad house too. There was no hope for it if you looked at it. But then suddenly, subtly, it changed. Now it didn't transform immediately. Someone didn't go to work renovating the whole thing from the outside in. The windows weren't fixed. The the draft still blew through. It could barely hold its own against the storm. But what happened was, almost imperceptibly in that stormy night, Barely discernible through that dirty window, there appeared a light. One single, solitary light in the house. It was just a soft, mild light. Not a great blaze, perhaps of a candle. 
It wasn't the kind of light that you could warm yourself with in this cold night. It wasn't something you could cook your food over. It was just a glimmer. But it was a glimmer of hope inside that otherwise desolate house. The house had not been abandoned. There was someone inside. The owner sat in there somewhere kindling that flame. That soft, flickering light, though barely a light, was still a light. And it revealed a love. It restored a purpose. And it gave the promise of a future warmth of hospitality and fellowship and communion. The world is that house. And the light that came into the world was our Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ, the eternal Son of God, the light that gives light to all men, came into the world at just the right time. We could talk about the darkness of that lonely night, couldn't we? And we could talk about that for a long time, couldn't we? But we don't need to spend too much time on that this morning. We know about that darkness. We know what that darkness is. It's a darkness of sin and death, of rejection of God, of self-imposed desolation. It was a world that long ago had rejected God and his love. It was a world where God had would have lived in his glory and given warmth to, but which preferred the cold, the dark, and the dreary to the warmth of communion with its maker. Men loved the darkness, the Apostle John tells us, because their deeds were evil. Even among God's own people, his own treasured possession. The times were dark. It had been over 400 years since they had heard the voice of the Lord through one of his prophets. 400 years of ever-increasing darkness. But our purpose this morning, brothers and sisters, is not to consider the darkness in all its many forms, but rather to consider the light at the moment that that light appeared in this world. To consider the purpose of God in sending His eternal Son into this darkness, into this world. Why? To what effect? And when we do this, two realities about His sending of His Son strike us. One is, just like that candle, it's it's just a small light. It's barely a light at all. It just flickers. It's only a glimmer. What can come of this? The birth of a child in a oppressed land, in a dark time. Not even born into any riches or luxury or future, but born in a stable and laying in a manger. But at the same time, we see that at the very moment that that light turns on, though a mere light, though a mere candle Yet at the same time, it's, it's a promise of so much more. That light is beautiful. It drives away the darkness and it reveals something glorious, heavenly, divine. 
as God sent his son into the world. Just a light. But a light. At just the right time. This morning we'll consider the birth of our Lord Jesus Christ under the theme of the timely birth of the eternal son. The timely birth of the eternal son. And if you look at verse 6 in our text, you'll see that Luke records there, while they were there in Bethlehem, the time came for the baby to be born. And that phrase betrays two purposes from Luke as he writes. One is that there is an earthly time. The time of, of pregnancy was over. The time came for the baby to be born. Mary's body would hold it no longer. It's just an earthly time. It's the way things always go with the pregnancy when they go well. But at the same time, it reveals something so much more. There is an earthly time, but there is a heavenly time as well as the Son of God comes into the flesh. And so we pick up the story in Luke 2. The angel, of course, has appeared to Mary, telling her that her son will be the Son of the Most High. That he will be conceived by the Holy Spirit. And as her pregnancy is coming to its climax, she and Joseph must travel some 120 kilometers from Nazareth in the north to Bethlehem in the south because of a census of Caesar Augustus. Caesar Augustus, the Roman emperor, wants to take account of of all his lands, probably for tax purposes. And so he has a census. He calls everyone to their hometown. And Joseph and Mary must travel this long journey to Bethlehem. And Luke 2 verse 6 reads, as we said, while they were there, the time came for the baby to be born. What this is speaking of, of course, is the normal course of pregnancy. That mysterious process which still has doctors confounded about why exactly and when exactly it is that the body decides that it is time for this baby to come out. It's a very earthly, natural process. That time had come. Think about that for a moment. The time, the end of Mary's pregnancy, had come. The Son of God, the eternal Son of God, was born through the normal method through which children come into the world. Through birth. Through that nine-month process, the eternal Son of God, who was with God from all eternity, who had been present and active in creation and had been at His Father's side at all times, even before time, who was God Himself, went from human conception to birth. His mother Mary would have experienced the, the, the normal pains of any mother giving birth to a child. Jesus would have cried like any other baby. He came into this this very world, the one in which we live. He came the same way as everyone else. And he came under the curse of the pain of childbearing that had been there since before the first baby had ever been born. This is what's communicated in those words. It's subtle, but it's there. The time came for the baby to be born. 
the eternal Son of God, entered into our experience, the experience of human life on this earth, in the most basic way possible. He was born. Added to that, and on top of that, he was born to suffering. That is, beyond even the normal pains and and anxieties and different things that are associated with childbirth, his birth was one of poverty, one of humility, and one of social isolation. It's striking that we celebrate Christmas with festivity and social gatherings and the enjoyment of good food and gifts, all of which are good things. They're fitting ways to mark the birth of our Lord. But yet, the birth of our Lord was so much different. He was born into difficult, even humiliating circumstances. Which mother would choose to have her baby miles and miles away from home, in a, in a distant town, at the tail end of a long and difficult journey in what was a, a stable or a cave? No room in the inn. The reality is that the eternal Son of God was not only born, but He was born into poverty and humility. He lived among an oppressed people, the people of Israel. They were oppressed in this time. His father and mother couldn't even stay at home for His birth. They were forced by this decree of Caesar Augustus to travel a long way to Bethlehem, and there they, were, they had to give birth to their child. They needed to because their land had been conquered by a foreign power, by the Romans. Also, while reporting to that town, they couldn't even find adequate lodging in which to stay, or anything that would be fitting for the birth of really any child. Now Luke doesn't give that Christmas pageant picture of an angry innkeeper driving Joseph and Mary away, or of some self-absorbed pilgrims rejecting them and not giving up their room, Luke simply records that there was no room for them in the inn. The town was packed with all these people who were reporting to Bethlehem. But the reality was that the inn was full, and Joseph and Mary were relegated to the stable. Probably the stable associated with the inn that Luke mentions the one where the pilgrims would have left their animals. That is where these pilgrims had to stay. And once born, and it's mentioned several times in Luke 2, once born, the Lord Jesus was laid in a manger, a feeding trough for animals. It was a birth of poverty and humility. And there's also this aspect, this undertone of of shame and disgrace, which is also present in this narrative. It's never explicitly pointed out, but enough clues are given that we start to ask questions. We learned earlier that Mary spent three months with Zechariah and Elizabeth at their home. Why did she need to spend three months there? And also, why did Mary have to come with Joseph on this long journey to Bethlehem? Scholars have noted that most likely, it would have only been the men who would have had to report to their town. Mary could have stayed home. She could have stayed home with the people she knew there. Sure, it would have been nice to be together for the birth of their child, but much more that the baby should be healthy and safe at home and there should be people around there to allow for a a better circumstances in the baby's birth. 
Was there no support in Nazareth? Did no one accept her because she was a virgin who claimed to, she claimed to be a virgin with child? The text, of course, doesn't give us any answers, but there's enough information there that we begin to ask questions. And one last humbling aspect of the birth of our Lord is this announcement to the shepherds in verse 8. Of course, in some ways, shepherds had a special place in Israel. David, the great king of Israel, had been a shepherd. God has spoken of their shepherd. But the reality for many shepherds was that they lived a lonely and a difficult life on the margins of society. No one appreciated shepherds. That's the job you got if you couldn't handle the other jobs that everyone else got. It was a thankless job that no one wanted. And yet this was the group, shepherds, in the middle of the night, to which the angels appeared to announce the birth of Christ. It was in these ways that the light came on, that the light came into this world, that Jesus came as the expression of the grace of God to a dark world. In these very humbling and and earthly portrayals of our Savior's birth, the Lord teaches us, doesn't he, about his care and his concern for the outcast, for the oppressed, for those for whom this life is difficult. He associates with you in his very birth. Life on this earth began in difficulty for the eternal Son of God. He was born to suffering. He was born in a dark and troubled world and already at his birth he associated with he entered into this trouble this darkness christmas is a time of joy and festivities of dinners and celebration but underneath every trapping of christmas There is a deeply human sense of need, loss, brokenness. It can be a very difficult time of the year. The gospel of Christmas is that we have a Savior experienced this brokenness, this loneliness, this isolation in every way. Our God in His grace sent His eternal Son to suffer with us and even more to suffer for us. The true light that gives light to every man is coming into the world. The Lord Jesus himself says, it's not the healthy that need a doctor. It's not those who have everything in this world and who are content in it that need a savior. But the sick. He says, I've not come to call the righteous, but to call sinners to repentance. It was a humiliating birth, brothers and sisters, that he could become one of us in every way. 
And so that in our brokenness and in our sin and in our suffering, he could give us comfort, hope, and restoration to God. It was a humble birth, but of course there is another side to it, isn't there? It remains hidden and subtle here in the account of Luke. It's not latent, it's not in full bloom, but it's like a candle on a dark night. It gives promise of light and warmth and better things. And when Luke writes, the time had come for the baby to be born, he opens up the reality of God's eternal purposes in history for us. The reality that the eternal God works in history, that he has not left us alone, that he moves it forward according to his plan, that he has had for all time nothing that anyone ever did could break his plan. This is what he intended all along, no matter how deep into darkness and despair the world went or his people went with them. God had a plan. And that plan came to its fulfillment and its climax when the time came for the baby to be born. And Luke opens up the window of this plan for us. He gives us a glimpse of this cosmic significance when we see that those angels who are not often seen by people, and when they are seen, then often only one at a time, they come in droves, they come in myriads, thousands upon thousands of angels come to sing glory to God in the highest and on earth peace to men on whom his favor rests. On earth there's humiliation, there's darkness, there's suffering, there's subtlety. In heaven, there's overwhelming and uncontainable praise that one light in the window, the humble birth of a boy, reveals praise and glory of angelic proportions. Heaven knows in full what earth is only beginning to wake up to in that dark night. The eternal Son of God has come, and He has come in the flesh. The Savior has been born. Jesus was born. But the Son of God, of course, had always been. You see, the Christian hope didn't begin on that day, in that stable, in that manger. Even before man was created, God had determined to save him. And he had determined that he would do it by becoming a man himself. The time came for the child to be born. But, the mo- but at that moment that the Son of God entered the world, it simply revealed what God had had in store the whole time. Since the very creation of the world. Promised to so many throughout history. The house may have seemed desolate and empty and worthy only of destruction, but God had the entire time a different plan for that house. He is, after all, the God who saves. It was in many ways the most humble event to ever happen in the town of Bethlehem. But it was a cosmic event in the history of God's redemption. 
It is what God's people had looked forward to because God himself had promised it. He had declared it in his word. He had staked his own truthfulness upon it. He had promised 700 years earlier through the prophets Micah and Isaiah that this child would be born. He had said through Micah, but you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of the kings of Judah, for out of you will come a ruler who will be the shepherd of my people. Isaiah had prophesied that the virgin will be with child and will give birth to a son and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. 700 years before the event, God had declared it, had staked his truthfulness upon it. And 300 years before that, he had said to King David, I will raise up your offspring to succeed you who will come from your own body and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Nearly a thousand years before that, he had said through Jacob, the scepter will not depart from Judah nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until he comes to whom it belongs and the obedience of the nations is his. And from the very beginning, he had promised the serpent in front of Adam and Eve, and therefore all of us, I will put an enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head, and you will bruise his heel. And it was really simply the fulfillment of God's eternal plan, the mystery of His will, as Paul says in Ephesians 1.10, which He purposed to be put into effect through Christ when the times will had reached their fulfillment. From all eternity, this had been God's plan, that the time would come in Bethlehem on that dark night for a baby to be born. In Galatians 4, verse 4, the Apostle Paul writes, In the fullness of time, God sent His Son, born of a woman, born under law, to redeem those under law, that we might receive the full rights of sons. Christmas opens the door on the Heavenly Father's eternal plan. It may have seemed like this was God finally coming to the aid of his people. But in reality, it was just the right time. Just the right time in God's purpose. It was the time in which God's glory could shine the brightest because it was the time in which the night stood the darkest. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light on those living in the land of the shadow of death A light has dawned. In the sending of His Son, He not only associated with us in our misery, with all those who suffer in this world, not only in our poverty, not only in our shame, but He has also lifted us out of our misery, our poverty, and our shame. He has experienced all of this that we might have the full inheritance of sons. That's what he says. 
He sent his son, born of a woman, born under law, to redeem those under law, that we might have the full rights of sons. Every right that the eternal had, that the eternal son had in glory at the right hand of his heavenly father is given to us. To all those who believe in him. Who declare that this Jesus born in Bethlehem under these humiliating circumstances is my savior. Is my comfort. Is my hope in life and in death. The eternal son came into this world that we for all eternity might share in the rights of the firstborn. The full inheritance of God's eternal Kingdom. A place there. A life of ever increasing light and honor and glory and praise. Jesus Christ came that we might be restored to God. The object of his love. Restored to his purpose. Experiencing the warmth of His communion and fellowship and hospitality. Now day has dawned for those who dwelt in death's surrounding night. The people who in darkness walked have seen a glorious light. Amen. This has been a sermon from the Langley Canadian Reformed Church. For more information, please visit us on the web at www.langleycanrc.org.